I'm Doug Wells. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. A former McKinsey consultant once wrote, to those convinced that a secretive cabal controls the world, the usual suspects are Illuminati, lizard people, and globalists. They are wrong. There is, however, McKinsey & Company. McKinsey is more than simply one of the big three consulting companies that newly minted U.S. MBAs flock to. Its reach and influence into the spheres of corporations and governments worldwide is extraordinary. And while it holds itself out as a pillar of rectitude whose actions are carefully monitored to be consistent with a set of high-minded values, the reality of what it does and who it does it for is far different. One fundamental element of McKinsey's culture is its commitment to maintaining the secrets of its clients. And that's why the new book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, by Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth, is so extraordinary. The book is a deep dive into how the company works and who it works for. We're lucky to have Michael with us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. So let's talk about, you know, McKinsey. What motivates you to dig into this particular company and how long did it take to do it? So uh, my colleague Walt and I have been working on this for more than four years now. And the motivation was really the secrecy behind the company and its, you know, reach into all the corporate boardrooms in America, almost all of them, uh, and governments around the world, big companies around the world. You know, there's been so many books written like about one company and, their, and that company's influence. But this company influences so many companies around the world and so many governments and does it in this culture of secrecy. And when you've got this culture of secrecy, that's just catnip for investigative reporters. So we wanted to find out more. Catnip for investigative reporters. Love it. Uh, and, and so this is a business show. This is a show about finance. Uh, but we do have listeners that listen in that are, are not fanatics about business. Uh, tell the audience, what is a consultant and why is McKinsey such a big deal in that space? Right, so so McKinsey is the Cadillac, you know, or the Porsche of consultants, the the biggest management consulting company in the world. And what do consultants go? It's a very good question. They do a lot of things. Uh, one thing maybe a lot of viewers may be familiar with is that they come into companies often and uh, at the request of the CEO or the CFO and suggest uh, job cuts, right sizing, as some of them call it. Uh, they've been doing this. This has been a staple of their work since the 1930s, so almost a century. That's something that people hear about a lot, but they do a lot more than that. Uh, they recommend complete restructurings of companies. They recommend ways for companies to boost sales in certain areas. They do the same for government. And I think the big picture of what they do also is that they diffuse knowledge. They learn what they call best practices uh, from the best corporations or the best governments around the world and they tr they diffuse that knowledge to, uh, to to other companies to other governments uh, and they do this around the world you talk about how they diffuse the best practices they certainly diffuse the most profitable practices and I wanted to sort of touch on one of those in particular we've, we've often talked on this program in the past about the growth of income inequality and one of the things that struck me as I read the book was the role McKinsey played with respect to the changes in executive compensation and the growth of outshoring can you share a little bit about that with the with our audience uh, yeah, it's really extraordinary. So back in 1950, General Motors hired McKinsey to do a study on executive compensation. And this uh, really hotshot partner at McKinsey named Arch Patton found something extraordinary. He discovered that worker pay was actually growing faster than executive pay. 
shocking. Uh, and, uh, you know, General Motors hired him. Uh, you know, he published this. He published a lot of his findings also in the Harvard Business Review and in publications like Fortune. Other companies started hiring. McKinsey started hiring this guy, Arch Patton, to do studies for them, recommending ways uh, to uh, to beef up executive compensation. They're there got to be some competition. Some companies felt really bad that their executives were paid so little. So it started to become a race for the top. And it's no exaggeration to say that McKinsey had a very big role in this. You know, back then, the average CEO made about 20 times uh, what the average worker made. We're well over 300 times the average worker at this point. Yeah, super interesting. I, I, another issue you bring up in the book is that McKinsey has an interesting approach to their concept of conflicts. A lot of a lot of consulting firms would say, you know, we're going to work with the leader in this space, and we're not going to work with any of their competitors. Um, McKinsey doesn't do that. In in addition, um, they will advise, consult for government agencies like the FDA and then also consult for the companies in which that government agency oversees. And one of the stories you, you share in the book is about uh, the role of Medicaid in Illinois. Uh, share with us about that conflict and then the story of, of Medicaid in Illinois. Um, so that was actually uh, one of the stories that uh, my colleague Walt uh, focused on in the story. But, uh, but McKinsey works for, you know, in a nutshell, works for it, one, and it's really the bread and butter. We, we do have some access to billing records, which no one's gotten before, that show uh, you know, the biggest customers, the biggest clients at McKinsey. And inevitably, it's pharmaceutical companies, hospital companies, the big HMO companies are really the bread and butter of McKinsey, that some of the, among the biggest clients, you know, we're talking companies, uh, you know, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Centene, um, some of the big pharma companies as well, like Johnson & Johnson. So private health care is really the big revenue driver at McKinsey. And yet those companies, companies like Anthem, uh, are increasingly managing Medicaid plans for the states. And this was the case in Illinois, uh, you know, where McKinsey was hired by the state, you know, to, to do work to advise on the Medicaid program, uh, uh, which again, in these states, a lot of these block grants and Medicaid money is being managed by the private companies. And at the same time, they are, uh, some of their even bigger clients are these private companies, these managed care companies. So that's, that's a real conflict. McKinsey's obviously been involved with a series of high-profile controversies, and one of the interesting elements of the book is to follow some of them. Um, those controversies have actually called some of its stated values into question. Uh, one of the headlines about McKinsey that I remember was uh, stories, stories that circulated about its role in ICE. Can you talk a little bit about McKinsey's role with respect to, to, to the ICE situation and also the internal crisis that was stimulated by one young consultant named Elfenbein? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so um, McKinsey started working uh, for ICE during the Obama administration, uh, and it was trying to, uh, you know, overhaul, uh, you know, some of the administrative, um, you know, 
functions in, 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 in the agency. This is Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. So these are the people that track down uh, undocumented uh, you know, immigrants in the United States and deport them. That's their job. Uh, the mission really changed uh, when uh, President Trump uh, took office uh, in early 2017. Uh, President Trump, you know, had a campaign pledge to 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 uh, reduce um, immigration, you know, illegal immigration, uh, you know, over the border, and he wanted a lot of people hired uh, at ICE. McKinsey was behind uh, a lot of the work that was going in uh, to, to do this. Um, the mission changed uh, and ICE, you know, during um, the Trump administration, ICE was very happy with McKinsey's work because it said McKinsey's work with ICE helped reduce the processing time to deport, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants. And so uh, that was a, a headline that, that the people at ICE, the leaders at ICE were happy about. Not surprisingly, a lot of people at McKinsey were very upset about this. You know, this was, you know, if you look, remember back in 2018, this was the time of the family separations when, uh, you know, these undocumented immigrant families were coming across the border and the, the, the parents were being separated from the children. Uh, we all remember, uh, you know, the heartrending stories from that. And so a lot of people at McKinsey were very upset to learn about the company's uh, support. Uh, in particular, one guy, uh, Scott Elfenbein, you mentioned. Um, so he's a Harvard graduate, uh, and one of his best friends from high school was an, an undocumented uh, alien, and, and his family, his parents, wound up being deported. But through Scott's effort and the effort of his friends, this young man, which is a star student at his high school in Miami, was allowed to stay. But when Scott Elfenbein learned a little bit more about the firm's uh, work with ICE, he sent an email around uh, to just a, you know thousands of people within the firm saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want we us to work for uh, you know ICE anymore. It's immoral. Um, and I want you to take out of my pay uh, the money, the profits that come from ICE, whatever portion that is. A lot of people signed on to this. Uh, it was a real, um, you know, uh, a, a, it, it was a real protest within the company. Yeah, and, and so that, you know, brings us to the question of values, right? Clearly, McKinsey does a lot of good, but as your point, uh, your book points out, they, they also are a force not for good. Uh, and so talk to us, it, in the book, you, you share a quote from McKinsey's kind of employee man, manual that says, whenever the firm has made mistakes or allowed its ambitions to run to excess, its values have reined us in. A system of value serves as an essential foundation of long-term institutional success. What are McKinsey's values? So McKinsey has all sorts of values uh, that they say have kept it, you know, uh, going strong and steady. Uh, one is an obligation uh, to dissent. If, you know, just like what Scott Elfenbein did, if you see a problem, you, you know, you need to report it. You, you have an, a right to do that and not, not get fired. Um, keeping client confidences, making, making sure you, you keep the secrets of your clients because you have lots of trade secrets. Another value, acting ethically is another value but the number one value year after year after year at mckinsey is that the interests of the clients come first and this is really the crux of our book because uh, and and i'd have to say mckinsey takes you know lots of companies have these like anodyne you know 
value statements and everything. But McKinsey takes it really seriously. They actually have a values day every year. They're constantly talking about values. And the idealistic young people that the company you know, employees really demand it. So the conflict between, though, you know, putting your client first, which sounds fine, and the problems that evolve from that. Because what if your client is a bad actor? Mm-hmm. What if your client is uh, Purdue Pharma that sells opioids, and you're doing everything you can do uh, to try to improve sales of OxyContin? You know, what if your client is ICE? What if your client is the Saudi government or the Chinese Chinese provincial government? So this is the crux of the problem that we're looking at in the book. These brilliant young McKinsey consultants working their hearts off for a client that sometimes is a bad actor and that the the, the intelligence and work that McKinsey consultants put into this uh, can, can do some real harm. You mentioned Purdue Pharma. This was another story that I found very interesting as I read the book. Uh, you sort of talk about how McKinsey advised the tobacco companies, the vape manufacturers, and even Purdue, while at the same time they're advising the FDA on regulatory issues. This is once again one of these things that, you know, coming from a background as a lawyer, I would have trouble understanding how this could possibly be allowed from a professional ethics perspective in the legal world. But it seems like it happens in the consulting world all the time. Can you share a little bit more about, but having said that, it seems to me that these were kind of extreme examples, advising the FDA on the one hand and Purdue on the other. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that played out and, and why was this allowed by the government? So it's amazing. We actually did some interviews with some uh, top FDA officials and, and asked them, did you know that McKinsey also worked for the companies you regulate, the pharmaceutical companies? And in two instances, they, they just didn't know. It wasn't something uh, that they knew about. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about Purdue Pharma. This was the subject of congressional hearings uh, earlier this year. And uh, members of Congress wanted to know the same thing. Why? How can you you know, work at the same time at the, for the FDA that you're, and you're working at Purdue Pharma and other opioid makers at the same time. And, and in fact, uh, what that committee found and what we reported on is that not only did McKinsey work at the same time for Purdue and the FDA, but also some of the same consultants um, had going back and forth between work at the FDA and work at some of these opioid makers. But it also extends to big tobacco. Uh, McKinsey worked for Altria, the, you know, the maker of the Marlboro Six Cigarettes. Until last year, they were working for these these big tobacco companies, and they worked at the FDA for the Center for Tobacco Products, the the, the division of the FDA that oversees the tobacco industry. Um, so, uh, same with vaping. Uh, you know, they worked for Juul until 2019, uh, and they were advising uh, the FDA's. Um, part of the FDA that that oversees uh, the vaping uh, industry. So. I think maybe the reason it is allowed to happen is because the federal government just people in the government just didn't know, uh, you know, at all about it. Uh, And so now they do know uh, and we'll have to see what happens. You know, another case, another uh, client uh, or McKinsey involvement that is very well known um, is the 2008 financial meltdown. I'm not saying McKinsey caused that at all, but they did play a role in the financial engineering surrounding the securitization of mortgages that many say led to or played a significant role in the great financial crisis. Can you share with our audience uh, how they influenced the market in that case? 
Right. So remember, we talked a little bit about that 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 study in 1950 about compensation that that caught on like wildfire. That, and that's the big thing that these big ideas that McKinsey propagates through the world. So McKinsey didn't invent the idea of asset securitization. You know, this is just a, the bundling up of assets and then selling them off. Um, that wasn't McKinsey's invention, but McKinsey really. Uh, took off with this idea and wrote, you know, one McKinsey partner wrote a book about it. A couple of others ones wrote a, a book about it. And they spread this idea to their clients, their banking clients, uh, um, their fund managing clients, this idea that you can uh, you can slice and dice assets, sell off portions of it on, you know, on a secondary basis. And we all know uh, what happened in 2008 uh, with the financial crisis, with these crazy exotic these collateralized debt obligations, you know, those those kind of words kind of bring back the shakes for us, you know, you know, who, who lived through that time. And McKinsey, you're right. They didn't cause the financial crisis. But just like with executive compensation, they spread the idea. They spread the gospel of securitization in a, at a critical time in the 80s and 90s when it was really taking off. Uh, Jeffrey Skilling, the CEO of Enron at the time, former McKinsey senior partner, adapted some of these securitization ideas uh, at Enron. And we all know how that story ended. So it's the power of McKinsey to spread ideas. And some of those ideas uh, have consequences that we just can't foresee. McKinsey's burst into the headlines a few times in recent years in ways that weren't very, you know, uh, flattering to the firm, if you will. Uh, can we discuss a little bit about South, South Africa and what happened there and whether or not that really shows that the, the ultimate value of McKinsey, at least in that aspect, was kind of greed? <laughs> Yeah. So South Africa was actually the first story we ever did back in June of 2018. Uh, and what happened in South Africa is that uh, the firm started working with some of these big state-owned companies, um, as the state-owned freight rail company, um, the state-owned power company there. Uh, and there was a requirement in South Africa uh, that, um, that these consultant companies team up with minority-owned uh, firms. Um, and uh, so McKinsey did that, but they didn't do their due diligence. And some of these, a couple of these firms were, were deep into a, a big corruption scandal uh, in South Africa that took down their president, actually, Jacob Zuma. He had to resign. Uh, and they call it state capture. Uh, and this is where, you know, arms of the state, you know, were, were basically turned into cash machines for corrupt uh, businessmen and and uh, and executives. And McKinsey itself, um, you know, may not have been doing the corrupt deeds, but their partners were. And, you know, they should have done, you know, the, the, the investigations and everything. They said McKinsey should have should have known about this. Uh, McKinsey had to pay back uh, millions and millions of dollars in its fees uh, that it that it charged for this. And just a few weeks ago, the company itself was charged in this big state capture criminal investigation. We don't know how that's going to, to play out. Of course, McKinsey's apologized uh, quite profusely for uh, its missteps uh, in South Africa, but it's really, uh, you know, hurt its business there. And they're not alone. Uh, its competitor, Bain & Company, uh, was also uh, deeply involved in this state cap. And in fact, it's not even allowed to get government contracts in uh, South Africa now. Yeah, your, your book's called When McKinsey Comes to Town. And you, you uh, opened the book with a story about Gary, Indiana, and U.S. Steel, and how... 
Um, McKinsey came in. They came up with a strategy with a very clever name, uh, the Carnegie Way. Uh, and in this case, we've been talking about fines and apologies and, and, and dollars lost. Uh, but in this case, one could argue because of their recommendations, safety standards lowered uh, and lives were lost. Tell our audience why your book's called When McKinsey Comes to Town and what happened when McKinsey went to Gary, Indiana. Right. So my colleague, Walt Bogdanich, is uh, from Gary. And not only that, he worked at U.S. Steel at the Gary Works plant uh, as a young man uh, long ago. Um, so he saw firsthand, you know, the danger there. Uh, one of his colleagues was was killed uh, while he was on the job there. Um, and, you know, Gary, it, it's a dangerous job. Steelmaking is, is dangerous. Um, McKinsey came in uh, back in, I think it was 2014, uh, to uh, U.S. Steel with this with this plan you said you noted was called the Carnegie Way. Sounds clever. I'm sure the workers there were like, what the, what the heck is this? Um, and, you know, but, um, you know, Gary is a very depressed place. It's, it's, it's used, it, it's so, you know, run down now because of, you know, the, the decline of U.S. Steel mainly, uh, you know, that they actually shoot post-apocalyptic films there. Uh, like Nightmare on Elm Street, I think even part of Chernobyl, that series in HBO was filmed there. It's really down on its luck and it, it's a one a one company town uh you know so mckinsey came in there was some hope but the workers there saw mckinsey uh as you know this carnegie way as a way that mckinsey was uh you know to, to disguise job cuts and, and and cuts in spending and one of the things we focus on was the idea there that they were going to do basically uh, maintenance where you just fix something when it's about to break. You, don't, you aren't doing the preventive maintenance ahead of time. And uh, there were some, uh, you know, lawsuits involved there uh, by, by workers who were killed and, you know, linking some accidents uh, at the plant to, uh, to this Carnegie way. Um, and, uh, you know, McKinsey, um, uh, the, the result actually was U.S. Steel, you know, for all of McKinsey's work, um, actually started making big losses when people thought it was going to actually make money. Uh, McKinsey went away, uh, and so did the Carnegie Way, his, its plan. Well, we've, we've enjoyed our conversation this morning. One of the things you write in your book is the uh, firm's chairman in 1986, Gilbert Klee, wrote, Regardless of an individual's field of interest or what he wants to do, I believe, I'm paraphrasing, an employee here offers two great sources of satisfaction. You'll be able to look yourself in the mirror every morning and say, there's nothing I need to be ashamed of. I think your book might have highlighted some ways that uh, McKinsey still has some growth to do, as do all of us in that way. We've enjoyed speaking with you. The book is When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the world's most powerful consulting company. Our guest has been Michael Forsythe. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you. October is National Women's Small Business Month, and Mound Money is excited to have Maggie Hiley, founder and general manager of VIN 7000. Maggie's given Utah lovers, uh, Utah wine lovers, a reason to rejoice. It is now possible to join a premium curated wine club thanks to VIN 7000, a boutique wine brokerage based right here on Park City. Customers may, customers may now currently select from six different wine clubs to join. 
and their regular sh- shipments are delivered for free to the state of Utah liquor stores of their choice. These are the typical types of wine productions that are not otherwise available here in Utah. Maggie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me here. So to date, all these wonderful wine clubs throughout the country, Utahns have not been able to uh, subscribe to because companies can't ship here. How have you been able to provide a wine club here in Utah? Well, you're right. The The biggest restriction to date has been uh, direct-to-home delivery. And so when a Utah goes out to wine country, discovers a winery they really love, wants to join the wine club, most wine clubs today, the shipments go direct to your home, and we can't do that here in Utah. Um, but we know there's a number of Utahns who want to be part of wine clubs and participate in them. And so we really just got innovative with some of the systems that exist through the Utah Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services to create a way to do a wine club and have it shipped to whatever liquor store that consumer typically shops at. You know, most Utahns who want to join a wine club are likely shopping at the liquor store anyway. And so it actually turns out to be quite convenient to just pick up your wine club shipment from there. So, so how does it work I, I, in, in terms of getting the approval for any particular vineyard to ship to a Utah liquor store? Do, do they have to go through an approval process that you facilitate through the wine club? How does that work mechanically? Yeah, so we started these wine clubs with six wineries who are part of our portfolio. So as a broker, our specialty are small production boutique family wineries from around the world. And so we selected six who represent a range of regions, varietals, styles of winemaking, price points, um, who already have existing wine clubs. And we did an extension of those to bring those to Utah. Um, So we're using uh, the special order system through the Utah DABS. It's how you get boutique um, alcoholic beverages that uh, they don't have room to stock in the stores. Uh, and we're using that system to be able to do these wine clubs. So are you, are you the first company in, in Utah that's been able to figure out how to do this? Uh, we are. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's amazing. I heard like with High West, there was this like hidden rule that allowed them to distill alcohol that even the legislatures had forgotten to, to do. It seems like this is such a, a valuable avenue for for companies like yourself to service people in Utah. Why do you think it's never been done before? Well, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of Utahns have a number of perceptions about restrictions on alcohol in the state. And some are real, uh, but I think there's a lot of things you can actually do here if you take the gumption to go try to figure it out. And so we pride ourselves since the very beginning. um, What we've been all about is understanding what wine drinking Utahns want that they think they cannot get in the state of Utah. And then how do we creatively innovate within the regulations of the state to make those things happen? And so that's exactly what we did with these wine clubs is we just, we had a work session with one of our winery partners and said, hey, we know people wanna join wine clubs here. There has to be a way to do this. And, uh, and so we came up with a system that we thought would work. We tested it out. It, uh, it gained a lot of traction. And so then we expanded it uh, to now have six. I think 
our business model makes it easier for us to do wine clubs than maybe some other bigger brokerages in the state. We're small. Uh, we work with wineries that are small. And so there's a lot of customization and, you know, there's a lot of work behind the scenes to make this happen that we're more geared to because just the boutique nature of our business and our clients' businesses, we, we do a lot of manual processes anyway. You mentioned that there's a lot of work behind the scenes, and I'm, I'm sure some of that work must involve the burdensome elements of tasting the different wines. Um, <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about how you develop those relationships with the vineyards. Yeah. Well, so I have been a uh, lifelong or adult-long uh, wine connoisseur, and so really starting the business in 2019 is when I launched it. Uh, we started with wineries that I had been long-standing um, customers of and had relationships with the owners, winemakers. So that's really how we started. Uh, we are in our fourth year of business now, and um, the growth has come from our R&D. Yes, it's a tough job, but <laughs> someone has to do it. Our R&D of discovering new wineries, but it's also come from a lot of our client recommendations, whether it's a restaurant or it's a wine-loving consumer in Utah who say, hey, I'd really like to get this wine into Utah. Can you help me with it? And so there's a good portion of our portfolio of amazing wines and amazing people that I have met through clients. And, and, and one of those vineyards is the Russian River Vineyard, uh, which you've launched earlier. Give us, a, when did you launch that in about how many people are signed up, I'm assuming, to get a monthly delivery of, of wine from them? Yeah, so we, we launched the Russian River Vineyards Wine Club in 2020, fall of 2020. So it was about a year into our business. And um, they are quarterly shipments that get delivered to the liquor store. Uh, right now, we have about 50 members of that wine club. We, uh, we, we, kept, we kept it kind of tied in with the messaging, letting our mailing list of subscribers know about the wine clubs, but it's only been recently that we have expanded the message and really been spreading the word uh, more broadly across the state. So um, it's, it'll be fun. We're, we've gotten quite a few new members in since we've uh, been talking about it more. So, so we've danced around a little bit about the mechanics. Let me, let me see if I can understand how this really works. Are there specific clubs for individual vineyards that I then join on a, on a regular subscription basis? And then do I just, do you guys just offer, you can join this one, this one, or this one. T tell me how it works. That's correct. Right now it's winery specific. So we selected these six representing a nice range. And so when you join a club or a few clubs, it is usually quarterly. Some of the wineries are biannually. Again, we're just we're following their their main wine club system and bringing it to Utah. And so we reach out before each shipment to every customer to confirm their order, and we get that order placed with the winery, and then it gets delivered to the store. And do they pay you, or do they pay the liquor store? Just out of curiosity. They they pay the liquor store. Yeah, all all money in and out goes through the Utah DABS. I'm 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 guessing that's a very important uh, part of the legal strategy. Um, so let's talk about um, the different clubs 
that you have? I, I think you said there's six of them. Yes. And what's the price range? Yeah, so there's six clubs. We have, um, we try to encompass wines that are going to appeal to most everybody. So we have a small little family winery in the Napa Valley. If you love Napa wines, we have two wineries that we're working with in Sonoma County. Uh, Pinot Noir Chardonnay are pretty typical there and then some unique varietals. Down in the central coast, we have a small winery called Andrew Murray Vineyards who does Rhone varietals. We have a, a winery partner in Pacific Northwest, so the Willamette Valley and Washington wines. And we have a French wine club, uh, which is predominantly Champagne and Bordeaux. Uh, the price, the bottle sizes and prices range. So some of the clubs are as small as three bottles every quarter, and some can get as large as a 12 bottle shipment every six months. So it depends which club you join and at what level you join it. And those prices range from, I would say the, um, the least expensive uh, ends up being about $45 a bottle or $140 a shipment, all the way up to $360, $380, depending on the, uh, the level of the wines and how many bottles. Now, I will say one thing that's very interesting is since we represent all small production, little family wineries, um, Utah pricing, surprising to many people, is actually lower than anywhere else in the country, including direct from the wineries, because the state of Utah takes a significantly lower markup on small producers. And so that's one of the things I know we've received a lot of questions from people of like, oh, does this pricing, does the state market up above that? Um, no, the pricing that we offer these clubs at includes the state markup and it includes a very reduced markup um, because of the types of wineries that we work with. So that's another uh, real bonus for Utahns that many don't know about. And when I sign up for a specific vineyard in a specific club, it's usually a one-year commitment? The, yes, the wineries request a one-year commitment. And, and, good. Go ahead, Doug. And we've had several guests on that have dealt with the regulators here in Utah. Um, and I've always been surprised that their their process there's there's there are perks to utah's laws like you just mentioned the yes. markup and for people that are doing distribution in the state it's a lot easier to do it in in utah because there's only one buyer uh and it's not so much about the relationships and all these other behind the scenes stuff uh, you mentioned one of the things that you were surprised at from a a positive standpoint what was what was a challenge with the state what was the toughest thing to getting this through um, you know, the state has been very supportive of what we're doing, uh, mostly because we're, we're following the rules and we're using their existing systems. They're aware that Utahns are looking for innovations in the liquor system here, including wine clubs. And so um, us being able to find a way to bring those here uh, has gotten a lot of support. Great. Okay. Well, we've uh, we wish you all the, the all the best. We've just got a, a couple more questions for you. Um, with the with the French wine that you offer, is can can a you're working directly with the vineyards? Can a international vineyard ship directly to Utah, or is there a intermediary that it has to go through a U.S. corporation first? 
a, an importer would be the intermediary. So when we were talking about right now, the wine clubs are winery specific. The reason we're able to do a French wine club is because we're doing that in partnership with a particular importer who brings, who imports in French wines from a few different small producers. And so therefore we can combine those producers to do both Champagne and Bordeaux sometimes a little Provence. Right, right. And, and share with us, so we've talked about price point, we've talked about the concept. Uh, for folks that are interested, how do, they, how do they find out more about your company? So our website is vin7000.com. Uh, all of the wines that we represent are on that website, and there's a tab specifically for wine clubs as well. Hey, Matt. Uh, welcome to Mound Money. Uh, and, and Matt, you're with Heber Valley's newest outfitter at the Homestead, and, and you're called Adventurage, which is entourage of adventure and liaisons of great times. Adventurage includes industry professionals, guides, guides and hosts that curate outdoor experiences and deliver healthy doses of mountain medicine. I love that, by the way. Matt Irvin, thank you for joining us on Mountain Money. Hey, thanks for having me this morning. So I'm not sure I, I, I gave justice to uh, what your company does. Share with our audience, what do you guys do? So we actually curate and specialize some of the best outdoor adventure excursions available here in Utah nestled right here in the homestead uh right in the heber valley which is a beautiful place to leave from we specialize in e-bikes we can take you to go snowmobiling we have a fleet of side-by-sides we run can amex 3 and then we will uh we can actually run you on a zip line all year round as well and so uh are you, you are you basically running sort of a what I would call a concierge adventure service. And is, is that really what it comes down to? I can come to you and say, you know, tell me what the variety of adventures I can have and you'll help me, help me set one up. That's exactly right. So we have a rental program that will allow you to, we can get you guys the maps that you need to get out on your own. If you are comfortable with that, or we're actually going to be able to guide you guys through the Wasatch on e-bikes. And then we are permitted with the uh, Uinta Wasatch Cash National Forest, which gives us um, uh, access to 400,000 acres of rideable terrain that spans from soapstone all the way to strawberry. And then I also understand you have a glamping uh, village near Strawberry Reservoir. Many of us are familiar what glamping is, but for those that aren't, tell us what that is. So we have four season tents that are nestled into a uh, beautiful section of the Lake Strawberry here. It's on the southernmost portion of the lake. Uh, these tents are then outfitted with uh, wood-burning stoves and very nice uh, living environment where you're going to have lighting that's all solar and we give you really nice beds to sleep in. The, the, the tents uh, range in different types of spacing from four person all the way up to 12 people is our biggest tent. Uh, currently, we had the plans to build nine of them, and we've completed five of them before we go into the winter, which makes our experiences even cooler, more of like leave from one destination to have our adventure to get you to our glamping experience, have overnights if you would like, and then bring you back over here to the Heber Valley. Now, does the glamping experience, do you guys actually do catering for that as well for, the, uh, for, for, for your adventurers? Yeah, great question, and we do. Um, we have a, a different, uh, a huge variety of menus, uh, and we use multiple different sources. 
but we have some very trusted chefs that we use that are local to the Heber Valley. Um, and we have a pretty large array of dining experiences for you at the ranch that we, uh, the ranch itself is actually 20,000 acres I didn't mention. And so once we get there, we play at the ranch, which includes those dining experiences. And then we, we show you the ropes back there in our cowboy country. And, and you, uh, my notes here say you also rent equipment uh, for folks. What type of equipment can, can locals and uh, tourists rent from you? Sure. Um, for the local market, we offer things from uh, bike mechanics all the way to the rental of different bikes. We carry a line of giant products, uh, and we're actually a giant dealer. We're supported locally as a satellite location um, for giant. And then we also have the ability to uh, outfit people when they get here, get them the helmets and all of the different gear that they need. Um, tourists and people that are just visiting can get outfitted. Uh, if they don't come with anything that they uh, should have prepared for, we are prepared for them. Okay, so we've talked about, uh, we ha- I think we've talked about snowmobiles. We've talked about four by four, uh, two uh, side by sides. What other kinds of adventure sort of terrain equipment do you offer? I'm sorry, uh, what kind of, can you repeat the last uh, Other terrain equipment. For example, do you guys have horses or do you have other kind of, you know, the terrain? Oh, for sure. Yeah, totally. Uh, so when you were asking earlier if you could just come and talk to us and, uh, and tell us what your dream vacation or adventure vacation is, we, do, we could curate that for you. We're connected with other vendors that have horses. Um, we have horses on our ranch. Uh, really what our experience is is if you come here and want to spend multiple days with us, we can have you on different types of machines from the ones that were mentioned to taking you hiking. Um, there's boat experiences out here that we're connected with. We take you out on pontoon boats and teach you how to wake surf. So uh, the basis of what we run here is led by industry leading guides. And so all of us, we're fathers and we're industry professionals. We're all trained wilderness first responders. Some of us are AVI Pro, AVI 1, 2, and Pro is what we keep as our certifications. We're just here so that when you come out with us, we can show you all the beauties of nature in a safe manner um, on the industry-leading equipment that's available to us. And, and give us an idea of, of budget-wise for the glamping. You know, we have friends that are coming from out of town. It's hard to find uh, lodging here in town. If somebody uh, wants to tell their friend, hey, there's this really cool place that, near Park City that you can say, what's the range? I know it depends on the season, uh, but what's the range for, the, for like a four-person tent there? Um, well, it it's actually depends on what kind of experience that you're going to be looking for. If, if you're just talking about an overnight rental, we have tents for as low as 350 a night. And then if you're looking for a well-curated experience, that ranges by person from, you know, $150 upwards of to whatever we're trying to accommodate. You know, if we're going to bring in equipment and machines to, for us to get there, there's a little extra cost. Uh, but we try to make it affordable so that people that are on a budget can definitely experience it. Uh, and that if you guys are looking for something well curated with chefs and really, you know, pull all the stops, we can definitely do that for those that have a budget that would sustain that kind of thing. Now, the Homestead Resort has been there a long time. And my understanding is that there's been some significant recent remodeling. Tell us a little bit about that. And more specifically, where are you located on the property? So if you're walking towards the main entrance, which is the lobby, on just to the left of it, which used to be the historic gift shop, 
we are located in that um, in that in that gift shop now, and so you can come see us, and we're all set up, so you can get checked in, and then come see your adventure liaison, and we will get the rest of your experience set up. Uh, the homestead actually has a new management group that started about three years ago, that is really putting their money where their mouth is here and making a beautiful outcome for our historic properties. Uh, we just they have some other things that I can let them. Uh, the, the sure. describe to the public that are going to be opening here in the future that are very exciting. Um, but it's going to be a very stay here, play here venue that has infinity pools, racquetball courts, a lot of indoor activities. We're already talking about um, climbing gyms and all the things that, you know, kind of the Heber Valley lacks. And uh, we have already started on the, the, the third phase of what is four phases to complete the renovations here. And, and Matt, quickly, just uh, share with our audience what your background was prior to doing this and how can people find out more about your company? Sure, absolutely. So I'm a 13-year professional as a guide. Um, I have built other adventure, successful adventure companies of the past. Um, and surprisingly enough, before all this, I was a professional musician. So a little mix of a whole bunch of things. Uh, you could definitely find our company, Adventurage, at adventurage.com we're also on facebook and instagram if you guys want to give us a follow out there and check out what we have coming we'll make our announcements there <laughs> and invitations to come see um to come see the glamping village okay. and then this friday we're going to be having our grand opening ribbon cutting which everybody's welcome to come to at 11 o'clock and refreshments will be served for everyone okay matt irvin thank you for joining us thank you for listening to mountain money Please visit kpcw.org for more information.